Particularly after what we've just been singing and realizing about God and his promises, I just, I'm even more excited that we can all just read this psalm out loud together because it is packed full of God's promises. Uh, so, John, if you would uh, put it up, uh, we we're going to say in a moment, just to say it's obviously a statement of faith. It's something that a believer in Jesus is saying, a believer in God. Uh, if that's not you, you obviously have it under no obligation to say it whatsoever. We're just delighted that you're here and we hope that you're going to get a taste of the goodness today. Uh, but for those of us who, who are uh, believers in Jesus and God's followers, uh, let's say this together because these are promises for us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and star, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word. This is God's goodness. These are God's promises to us. And we're going to just spend some time looking at a couple of them in particular that we might be more in love with God, that we might be more confident in him and in what he is doing. This psalm is famously about God being a shepherd, um, but today's verse moves away from that imagery, uh, but the theme of God's care for his people remains. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. It's interesting, isn't it, that even when the Bible is promising us great things, wonderful things, it never pretends that we won't be frustrated at times, or confused, or hurt, or sad. The verse before this, and we referenced it in our worship, um, talks about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. This verse talks about having enemies, and by doing so, the psalm promises God's care for us in those days, at those times, when we're walking through dark valleys, when we feel surrounded by enemies, it says, God will be with you, God will care for you. And if he's able to do it then, he's able to do it at all times. So this is not telling us that life should be easy, but that God is faithful. And we're going to look at that in detail today, so that, again, if you're a believer in Jesus, you can be, yes, I'm more confident about that, I'm reminded about that, I'm delighted again. And if you're not yet, you can see what you can step into when you give your life to Jesus. And we'll look in some detail, and then we're going to remind ourselves at the end of the surprising thing that God's done that is greater than anything that's actually described in this passage. And so let's just pray right now. God's really with us, but let's pray that he would, by his Holy Spirit, just give us eyes to see his goodness, his promises, in these few words. They might be very old news to you, but there's a freshness coming. It might be brand new, and you're going to be amazed that this could be true. Lord, wherever we are on that spectrum of experience, we just ask you now to open our eyes, open our ears, move our hearts, give us a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone, ears to hear and eyes to see. Help us, Lord God. Amen. 
Amen. Okay, so I'm just going to move that, otherwise I'm going to think about hitting it the whole time. Um, David, the king of Israel, who wrote this psalm, he gives us a really simple picture here. There's a crowd of enemies, and David is in the midst of them, but he's perfectly safe because God is with him. In fact, he's more than safe. He is having a feast. He's having a great time. This actually kind of happened to David once in his life. He was on the run. One of his sons had rebelled against him and had got an army and was trying to kill his dad, which is obviously bad news. And, and David has to go on the run. And so he, he has to leave the place that was safe for him. He's out in a wilderness place, and the enemy's nearby. And then 2 Samuel 17 talks about these three guys. They bring David and his men beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans and lentils, honeys and curds and sheep and cheese from the herd and all this stuff. And so as David was running away from this enemy, suddenly he gets a feast given to him. And maybe this was in his mind when he wrote this psalm. But in that episode, he is kind of on the run. It is a secret thing. There's not a big you know, social media campaign about you know, Feast for David today. And isn't it great we do it? It's kind of done in secret. It's just the guys who are trying to kill him don't know about it. Now, that's different to what happens in Psalm 23 because there's no sense of secrecy in Psalm 23. Instead, this is God vindicating David, honoring David, even as his enemies look on, frustrated angry, still wanting to get at David, but unable to do anything about it. Because God is with David, and God has chosen to bless him and make a feast for him. So that is the kind of vibe of this verse, and we're going to then look at the details, and we're going to start with those enemies. Because David had enemies all his life. Uh, He famously took on Goliath the giant really early on when he was still a young man. And that was his first enemy that he just killed. And he didn't do it by himself. He said, although he was alone, he he had God with him. He said, I'm going to kill you in the name of uh, God Almighty. And he did. And this was a great moment. And hooray, success. Except that David's victory over Goliath made the king at the time, Saul, insanely jealous of David. And so Saul then became David's enemy and was hunting him. And other people who were either on Saul's team or wanted Saul's favor were then also hunting David as well. And so he often felt kind of surrounded by enemies. God brought him through that, though, amazingly, and David became king. But he's then the personification of his nation. And his nation is surrounded by other nations that want the land that belongs to Israel, that want the crops that belongs to Israel, that want the riches that belong to Israel. And, and Israel was a small nation. And where they were, it was really strategically important. And there were big empires to the north and to the south, and then smaller neighbors nearby. And everyone kind of wants a bit of what Israel has. And so having a sense of being surrounded by enemies was Israel's constant experience, but they were uniquely blessed with the presence of the one true God amongst them. And so in a way, we can see actually Israel's experience as being the same as what David describes in Psalm 23. There they are, God and his people surrounded by enemies, and also the sea in this case. Um, Although that represented chaos, so it was kind of enemy as well. There's nothing unusual about having enemies. It might not be our ambition or our preference, but since sin entered the world and we separated ourselves from God, people have been divided against one another. In the Bible's account, almost immediately after Adam and Eve sin against God, we see them arguing with each other. 
They have two sons. One of them kills the other son. The next person given a speaking role in Genesis is a guy called Lamech, who boasts about being someone who brings 77 times revenge on anyone who touches him. And this just goes on and on and on and on and on. And so from global geopolitics to family feuds, from difficult neighbors to unjust bosses or colleagues, we all experience tensions in our relationships with others, and sometimes it's far worse than just tension. The Bible's a real life book. The Bible knows what life is about. And in the Psalms alone, there are more than 50 mentions of enemies at work in a believer's life or causing problems for God's people. Now, labeling someone as an enemy might seem a little bit extreme for most of us most of the time, but we all experience opposition, and sometimes it is intended to hurt us, it is intended uh, for our, our, our suffering. Now, God's people are brought into a great conflict when we associate ourselves with Jesus. So God has enemies, and so his people have enemies. Jesus is clear there are no neutrals. You're either for God, he says, or you're against him. God says things like, this is who I am. This is what's good. This is what's bad. This is what's true. This is what's false. This is what I want you to do. And people say... No, we'll decide that for ourselves, thanks. That is them conflicting with God. That's them rebelling against their maker. That's them becoming his enemies. Amongst Jesus' titles is Prince of Peace, but he's also the righteous judge and the conquering king who has come to bring God's will in all things. And so he was clear that belonging to him meant separation from the ways of the world, and therefore if you're separated from the rest of the world, the world isn't going to be a fan of that. In John 15, he says, If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. Jesus saying that the night before he was crucified. It was real for him. It was true. And it was then real and true for the early church. You see it in the letters that the leaders write uh, to people. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. So that's something that happens to you when, if you become a Christian, you become involved in this conflict. You become involved in the sufferings that Jesus had. It's not a fight we choose, but it is one that we're in. Now, this can happen at a, a, a kind of cultural level, just the ways of the world around us. And that might feel quite novel for us. Uh, if, if we're from the West, we're kind of used to thinking it's a background assumption of Christianity. Actually, if you look in church history, even in the West, when people really want to follow Jesus, they usually get in trouble. But maybe you're from another part of the world and you're much more aware of this sense of conflict. You've experienced it uh, in, in, your, in your nation, even in your, uh, your tribe, or your, even in your family. Because it can, we can experience this at a very broad level and then a very personal level. 
Again, from his own experience, Jesus said, family members will fall out with you, and worse, because of me. Ultimately, it's a spiritual conflict. Ephesians 6, 11 to 12, Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the Bible's explanation of the tension that God's people experience and of the tension and of the evil that is in the world. That's the bad news. But there's good news. And it's this, that Jesus promises to be with his people and victorious over those who oppose him. He says this time and time again. He says, in this world you'll have troubles, be of good heart, I have overcome the world. And he says, I will be with you. He says, whatever's happening, I'll be with you. And that serves a purpose because Paul says again in Ephesians that it's God's intent that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So he's saying there's this gathering of people who belong to God God is with them, and then witnessing all of this, not just our people in the world, but actually spiritual forces that are against God, they're all watching on as God is with his people and blessing them. And so this is the situation we find ourselves in if we're believers. And maybe if you, this, you've maybe not heard this before, it's, well, this might just make sense of some of your experiences at present. Like, why is that so hard? Why do they hate me so much? Why did becoming, becoming a Christian make my life harder when I was promised it was going to make it nicer? And part of the reason is you're in a spiritual conflict now. But God assures you of his care. Quick side note, uh, we were having windows fitted to our house uh, this week and I was just chatting with one of the guys about my, about my faith and his immediate reply Straight away, he was like, oh, religion just causes so much strife. Because he lives just to the east of Glasgow, and he's used to seeing people who call themselves Catholics and call themselves Protestants, you know, fighting. Literally fighting. Not just, you know, a few bad words here and there. You know, properly fighting. Now, even if we might say that those people aren't necessarily faithfully following Jesus, there are plenty of other committed believers who have hurt others. Christians aren't always innocent in conflict, despite the clear command to be. And so we have to just acknowledge that, even while, you know, it's not like because I'm a Christian, I'm therefore great and innocent to everything. Not always. The gospel undermines that way of being like, I'm all right and they're all wrong. But it does it in a really interesting way, and we're going to see it later. So that's the outer part of the picture that David gives us. is this crowd of enemies. Some of them are malicious. Some of them may be well-meaning, but they're opposing God. And we can see this image recurring throughout history, and we can experience for ourselves, and we can feel intimidated by it. We can feel scared by it. We can just feel tired of it. That's, what, that's generally the thing I feel. I'm just like, again, ah. Oh. But David knows that he is not alone. He says to God, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. God's right there. This isn't you send a deliveroo to me. 
you come and you're with me. So let's look at what God does. There's a table. Now, I'm always very happy to be offered food, and that's great, and that would be enough for me to celebrate and talk about that at length, just for us to you know, really dwell on God's kindness in that way. But David's saying more than that. So the ancient Near East was full of like, basically like little kingdoms, and often they were jostling with their neighbours uh, for power. And as part of this, the stronger ones would offer their protection and provision uh, to others. They say, hey, come and be part of my team, and I'll look after you. And they would make what was called a covenant to guarantee that relationship. And basically, they'd be saying, listen, I'm stronger than you, and so you owe me allegiance, uh, you owe me honor, obedience, assistance, that kind of thing, but I am committing myself to you as well. I'm committing to help you. So it was a show of strength. It was also a way of extending influence. But it was also how the most vulnerable could keep themselves safe. So they'd be like, well, someone's going to get me, and this person's promising to help me. The stronger party was basically saying to the weaker, if someone attacks you, they attack me. And this idea of covenant is one of the main ways in which God explains his relationship to his people in the Old Testament. It's like, you guys were in so much trouble, you're so weak and fragile, and I, who am mightier than all, have said, you're with me. Words used over 250 times. And when a covenant was made... One of the ways in which it was ratified and then celebrated was with a meal. And the, the, the stronger party hosted that meal. It was them saying again, you're in, you're with me, isn't it good? Look at all this food, you're totally safe here. All this is what's going on when David says of God, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. God is showing his protection of David as well as his provision. David's saying, they're all there and they can't touch me. My God is stronger than they are and he will protect me. Why does God do this? Well, he's showing his greatness. He's showing his superiority over all other powers. Israel was not a mighty nation. There was very little that would explain why they would survive, but they had a mighty God. There are so many nations you've never heard of that are around there. Even on the map, we saw earlier, like, I don't know who they are, but you know that name. Why do you know that name? It's not because they were great. It's because their God was great. And he was faithful. As long as they were faithful to him, they would flourish and be safe. And all the enemies in the world couldn't stop that from happening. It's been said, or it's said many times in the Bible, we can see it in history as well. The only explanation for the preservation of God's people is God himself. So that's part of what's going on. God is showing, I really can do whatever I like. Even with this completely unlikely weak bunch, I can make them strong. But there's a more personal reason too. Why does God prepare a table? Because he loves being with his people. He doesn't keep his distance. He gets close. He could have just put, I don't know, like an angelic bodyguard all around them, or like a wall of fire or something, or could have put them on an island in a massive ocean that no one could He could have done something that would have kept his people safe that didn't involve him being there, but that would not be his heart. That's not what he's like. Instead, he comes to be with his people. And we see this just all the way through the Bible. What happens right at the start when he makes all of this creation? It's all wonderful. Adam and Eve are there. What's God going to do? Say, see you later, have a great time. No, he goes to be with them. 
David's experience here. And then Jesus comes to be with his people. And then Jesus says, I'm going back to the Father. So we're going to send the Spirit, which is our presence, ourselves, to be with you. And he's going to be with you until I come back, and then you'll be with me forever. That's the heart of God. And we might look at ourselves and say, are you sure? Like forever. Or you might look at someone else and say, are you sure? You're going to kind of keep them just at arm's length a little bit, keep them at the back or something? No, God said, no, I want to be with my people. Because that is the love of God. Now, we'll look at two other things that David says about this table in a moment. But there's something that he doesn't say that it's important that Christians do see at this moment. The Gospels tell us that Jesus loved eating with people. But there was one meal in particular that would forever speak of his love for us. One night in a city that was full of his enemies, Jesus gathered some of his closest friends to a table. And we're told that he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so God's people eat this meal again and again and again, remembering what it cost God for us to be with him. And we'll do that at the end of our service. But before we get there, let's just look at the other things that David mentions. He talks about oil. You anoint my head with oil. Olive oil was used for all sorts of things in David's world. A couple of its uses are probably in mind here. So it was an ointment to make one's face shine. And if your face is shining, it indicates health and happiness and all those kind of things. And so it was one of the ways in which a host could make their guests feel welcome when they arrived. They almost certainly would have travelled distance. It would have been hot and sweaty. They'd be dusty. And so when you arrive and the host says, hey, here's some, anoint- here's some oil. Let me just anoint your head. He's saying, hey, I'm like letting you freshen up and let you not look like you've just been dragged in off the street but that you're good to go. In Luke 7, 46, Jesus rebukes a host of a meal Jesus went to, said, what are you doing? You've not even anointed my head with oil when I came in here. So that was an expectation that that's what a host would do for their guests. But oil had an even more powerful meaning, and David had experienced this himself. So when God told the prophet Samuel that David was to be Israel's next king, this was symbolized by Samuel pouring oil on David's head. And anointing oil was used on various objects and on various people as well as a mark of God saying, this one is for my use. This one is for me. I'm setting them apart. If something was anointed with oil, I mean, you couldn't use it for other things. And so for David, this isn't just saying, when you anoint my head with oil, this isn't just him saying, wow, you make me feel so welcome. This is him saying, you have made me yours and you've set me apart that I might be part of your purposes. Now that's true in general for all God's people, but then there's even more about this for us today. Because oil is strongly associated with the Holy Spirit. The actual description of what happens to David in 1 Samuel 16 is, Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and... The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now, Jesus is the anointed one. 
It's what Messiah means, what the Christ means, and Jesus promises the anointing of his Holy Spirit, the gift of his Holy Spirit for all his people, that they would be empowered to do what he did and to be involved in his kingdom purposes. So when you hear he anoints my head with oil, you can hear welcome, but you can hear much more than that. The very presence and power of God with you. And then David talks about an overflowing cup. So it's said in some cultures that uh, when an honoured guest came into the house, the host would do this kind of elaborate thing of putting a cup in their hand and then pouring out wine into the cup very carefully so that the wine would fill the cup, fill the cup, and then overflow. And by doing this, the host was saying that whilst you are in my house, you are going to lack for nothing. I've got so much for you, you can't even contain it. Now, you know when you host someone and they say, oh, could I have a coffee? And you're like, nope, nope, we've run out. Or they just, have you got this? Can I borrow that? And you're like, ah, no. That's never the case with God. David's expectation, right at the start, the Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. There's nothing I won't have if I'm with this one. Because he has an abundance. Does that mean material blessing? I think David would definitely have expected that. I think that's in his mind when he says that. But also this is a psalm that talks about going through valleys of darkness and death. It talks about having enemies. And so that that sense of it's difficult and I'm blessed at the same time is definitely going on here. And then when Jesus comes, he redirects our attention from present physical blessing to eternal spiritual blessing. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So for us, the abundance of God, which we do experience right now. I mean, I know each of us experience struggle at the moment. Each of us are like counting pennies, seeing costs rise, struggling with that. Some of you will be really experiencing that at the moment. But we also live in a time and place of incredible abundance, like just historically and compared to most places in most times ever. So there is an abundance that we experience right now, but God said, that's just the start. It's like the beginning of me starting to pour something out for you. The overflowing cup is the reminder that even the poorest Christian has more than all the billionaires on this earth combined because they have Christ and an eternity with him in a limitless creation. And we're going to talk about that next week some more because it's good to think about it. But let's just go back again to this picture David's given us today of God's kindness and care for his people in David's life, in Old Testament Israel, and now for those who believe in Jesus, surrounded by enemies, but with God and richly blessed. Good news. Wonderful news. Isn't that great? Yes, it is. But there's something in this picture that you may have forgotten. If you've been a Christian for a while, and it's this. Something that makes this image just even more incredible. Where are you in this picture? If you're a Christian, where are you? You're in the middle. Sorry, it's not a trick. (laughs) On the inside, as it were, with God. 
Is that where you've always been? No. No. Let the Apostle Paul spell it out to you in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the devil. We all were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were enemies. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Doesn't that sound quite a lot like what David describes in Psalm 23? except that you were out there and now you're brought in and up and with God. He goes over this again almost immediately because he's focusing at this point on how Israel's traditional enemies, the Gentiles, basically everyone else, all the green that we saw on that map, the Gentiles are now able to come into this house and sit down with the Jews with God. And they can't really get over it, and so Paul has to explain it to them again. And as he does so, just listen to his implied references to communion, and Hamham describing how Jesus brings people from the outside as enemies to the inside as his beloved. You were, at that time, separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh his body, the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached, peace to you who are far off, and peace to you who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, and let's add enemies, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. To experience all that David describes in Psalm 23 is wonderful. But to have been brought in from being one of those enemies, for Jesus to have gone and got you and brought you in, that he might do all this to you and for you, It's barely believable. And yet it is the heart of God. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, but not rather that he should turn from his way and live? We did not have a seat at this table. We were God's enemies in what we did and said and thought actively, passively, consciously, unconsciously. And God's response to us was to bring us in to be with him, to reconcile us to himself through his son. And he welcomes us and he sits us down for an abundant feast now and forever. And he has paid for the whole thing by the body and blood of his son on the cross. And that's why Jesus tells us to love our enemies. Because that's what he does. 
did this for you if you're a Christian. Maybe he used some people in that process, friends, family, neighbors, strangers. Now he wants to use you to do that for others. How could you tell someone that there's a seat at this table for them? How might the Spirit empower you to do this? And how will you share God's riches with others that they might know his goodness and come in and be with him?